0: Hello and welcome to Unfiltered, an intellectual podcast. So with all of this news coming out with Trump potentially st- striking a deal with the Democrats over DACA, which we now know is fake news, uh, there is no deal, there is no legislation yet, but with this news, it brought about a lot of anger, riled up the base because they weren't sure if Trump was going to betray the base with this potential deal. So I think with that, C wanted to just have a discussion about, you know, we're about eight, nine months into the presidency, we want to see if President Trump is going along the path that he was elected to, or is he starting to stray?
1: Right. And so we've noticed a lot of um, confusion and some fear and some feelings of uh, resentment that have been bubbling up in the community. And so we thought that we could have a debate, whereas I would take one side and M would take another side. And we could see if we could come and maybe meet somewhere in the middle, um, trying to come to the conclusion as to whether Donald Trump is still on the train or if he's hopped off uh, because he's possibly gotten a better ride. Um, so I'm happy to go first, but uh, let me know if that if that would suit you, M, and uh, we can take it from there. Okay, so the simple premise, I'll take it from the side that I believe um, our president may be stepping off the train, but I think like most supporters, this is not a premise or this is not a conclusion that we want to have. So the premise is that the establishment may have crept in the middle of the night right into the White House. And that's something that we worry about. And it's not baseless, it's coming from uh, some of our favorites, Steve Bannon and Sebastian Gorka and I'll throw in a few quotes and uh, so Sebastian Gorka said in his resignation letter letter that regrettably outside of yourself the individuals who most embodied and represented the policies that will make America great again have been internally countered systematically removed and undermined in recent months and this kind of connects back to something that Steve Bannon was talking about Early on in the presidency he mentioned this in a 60 minutes interview and he said that the small scrappy campaign team had to transform into a a governing uh, coalition uh, to run the federal government and he said that they were looking to essentially the establishment um, as uh, individuals who would be capable of doing this this job so he said that 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 happened and he regretted that it happened but at the time he supported it because the options were pretty slim and a few months later or quite a few months later he's out of the White House door and he's saying that the Trump presidency that we fought for and won is over and we still have a huge movement we will make something of this Trump presidency but that presidency is over so that's the key premise that the the establishment has moved into the White House and Sebastian Gorka goes on to say that...
0: Wait, did Bannon actually say that the Trump presidency is over?
1: That's a quote. That's a quote from Bannon to the Weekly Standard. So, not the best news. I get the sense that there might be some bad blood. However, it's being... It's 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 very gently expressed, I guess you could say, um, between uh, Bannon and Gorka and the White House. Both are incredible professionals. However, my instinct says that um, the... Events that led up to their resignation were not the best ones and the fact that Steve Bannon um, said that DACA was non-negotiable, all illegals must go, and that was countered within a week by Donald Trump himself who made a deal, gives me the impression that Donald Trump didn't like the idea that Steve Bannon was talking um, or was producing Donald Trump policy on 60 Minutes. And so Donald Trump was going to show uh, the world who really was making policy, just a feeling that I have.
0: Okay, I see. And I think we just kind of have to face it when it's regarding the staffing issue. There are just not enough economic nationalists out there who are qualified for these positions. That's true. If you have to think who are the available candidates, you need people who actually have experience running a government because if, when you enter the presidency there are a lot of political appointments you have to make and these are for very complex organizations that you can't just have someone who maybe had somewhat of a similar experience in the corporate world you you kind of need someone who understands how this bureaucracy works I mean Bannon even said this in his 60 Minutes interview that Washington you have to think of it in terms of institutions and so when it comes to the executive branch You have multiple departments that the executive branch is responsible for and yeah I think you have to treat that as a separate institution from just Trump the president.
1: I I do agree with you and I think that was precisely the problem that faced the um, winning coalition in the Trump campaign that they needed this institutional expertise. Now I think the problem is um, a bit of a finer slice so What ideally the Trump presidency uh, would want is people with institutional expertise, however they would come with their expertise but not their preconceived biases. And the worry, I guess, the platform that Donald Trump ran on was that neither the Democrat nor the Republican party were serving the people because neither party would address the illegal immigration problem and both soundly condemned him in general. Um, On his policies in that regard yet. He was supported buoyed by the people who enabled him to have victory Um, And part of that mandate was that this Washington thinking this swamp would be drained or moved aside and I do understand that unfortunately we have a reality that that comes up uh, that butts up against us that the establishment is necessary because that is the institution that runs our country and without it, we would be a a much weaker country with um, human capital institutional expertise diminished. However, um, the problem I think is when the establishment is still pushing for these policies and while they're in the White House and running the executive branch or even the uh, legislative branch, they're able to still move their uh, default preferences forward through uh, the president himself, and one of those preferences would be amnesty for um, DACA recipients.
0: And so your concern is that w- with a person like Bannon outside of the White House, you don't have a counter force.
1: I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go that far. Um, I don't disagree that Bannon and Gorka um, cannot be very powerful forces marshalling that people power that wasn't formally in the administration. So I do think that's okay. What I do worry about is that the president himself is the chief executive and and he's more powerful than the movement, at least at the moment, right? But what I'm worried about is him being disconnected from that movement where the establishment is influencing him through one way or another, Uh, that's not transparent to us, Um, but is influencing him in a direction which is uh moving towards legalization of some of the daca recipients and admittedly it's not all of them um most likely and it's not all illegals and uh, there are practical problems that you know i understand um, can't stand in the way uh, one could also say to soften the position that the um I'm sorry, I'm making I'm making your your work for you. M, I shouldn't do that. I should let you uh, argue on the uh, uh, opponent opposing side.
0: Yeah, so if the concern is about the establishment coming over and influencing Trump, we have to remember that Stephen Miller is still in the White House. He's still advising the president on immigration issues and he's extremely well versed on the subject. I mean, you can just remember when he came out, started talking about a point-based system and completely uh, destroyed Jim Acosta out there when he was uh, on that press conference. That was wonderful. So I think when it comes to immigration, I think President Trump still has a very solid advisor behind him. So I'm not as concerned about that. I can understand how, you know, you have some people saying, you know, Trump was always kind of had a little bit more of a soft spot for the dreamers. But, you, you know, you also have Trump saying, you know, everyone has to go back and come back uh, in some sort of legal manner, and so I think what we have Sprouting out right now you have one side saying no. This is a complete betrayal of what the movement was for and What they're citing is this potential deal although there's nothing Set in stone yet. There's there'd be a lot of steps like you have to draft the actual act and then has to go to the house and through the Senate and Then you have the other side saying well are you really going to deport all eight hundred thousand dreamers? Aren't these the type of people we want to keep? Whereas I think with the correct approaches, is, is that I think everyone's probably going to have have to go. You know, you have your your permits expire um, in twenty eighteen timeframe. At that point, you know, you have to enforce e verify if these people don't have. Uh, the proper papers, they're going to have to go back because if they get shut out from employment and from any ability to get welfare, then there's no economic incentive for them to stay here. They'll have to go back to the country of their origin where they have their citizenship. So in, in what what my argument is really going around is that you know these people will have to go back. Maybe you have a system, a points-based system, where you provide some sort of expedited screening for the ones who are the most valuable, but it's eight hundred thousand people. You know, you have insiders saying that maybe, you know, there's a lot of fraud going on. So maybe up to half of these applicants aren't re- really qualified for those positions. And then of those positions, how much of those are actually of high caliber positions that we need? We don't want to just be bringing in people who are going to just be seasonal migrant workers. You know, as Democrats like to say, "Who's going to pick the fruit from our farms?" So I think what's going to end up happening is. A final deal, there's going to be, there's going to have to be a compromise. The wall is going to have to be involved in any sort of compromise. And I think that what really happened was Trump got the message, the GOP got the message, since all of their phone lines were just ringing up like a storm the day when it would really hit the news that there was this potential deal. So immigration is really important, and I think President Trump understands that. That's what he ran on when he announced his presidency. He said, Mexico, they're not sending us their best. They're sending us their their rapists, their criminals, their drug dealers. He said, some I assume are good people, but we have a problem on the southern border, and we're going to build a wall. That was what he said in his first speech when he was announcing his presidency. And that was his key issue as he ran. Immigration is extremely important. Ann, Ann Colder, who's not a fan right now of President Trump, but she did a good job of analyzing that. Immigration is extremely important to the base because what people want is a legal system. They don't want illegal immigration. It makes a joke of the system. And I think President Trump understands that and what we're seeing right now is on one side it is fake news from the democrats saying that oh we have this deal on daca when in reality there is no deal and on on the other side i think there's a lot of overreaction to trump in the middle of of a negotiation i think with this you can't think linearly you have to think strategically he's very unpredictable so i would withhold judgment because until you have a final product. It's very difficult to make a decision with such a limited data set.
1: I agree with that. And I think we we can, and we owe the president a heck of a lot more than a uh, suspension of belief for the moment. He's given us quite a bit and...
0: Suspension of belief is only for Hollywood.
1: Yeah, well at the moment, you know, we uh, I think we have a few things to worry about, um, but I, I agree that it is early to say. And um, so, but I'd like to touch on a few more points that I do find a little bit disturbing. Now, the disagreement with the president has been with firm supporters of the Make America Great Again movement. So you have Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, Stefan Molyneux, as you mentioned, Ann Coulter. And strangely enough, those who are um, agreeing with the president at the moment are Um, Bill Mitchell and Alex Jones, who are very, very staunch supporters of a deeper strand of the Make Make America Great Again
0: movement. I would just quickly interject and argue that Alex Jones has been around for a very long time, and I think he has a very good sense of the pulse of at least a portion of the base. Here's the problem,
1: right? He's talking about green cards for kids and uh he's saying you can't expect donald trump to really deport children he says
0: who's saying alex alex is saying that
1: alex is saying that and in the comments um people are disagreeing like they they don't want that and so what i'm worried about is that we know that alex jones interfaces a lot with the administration and i'm worried that the administration is sending signals to alex jones to say this is the party line go along with it and they're not really bothering to recycle the moraliz- moralizing talking points Um, And so they're being delivered directly. And this can undermine um, Alex Jones's connection to his audience, which is very important because he he provides a lot of good content that moves uh, the movement in a positive direction.
0: So why would they only give those talking points to Alex Jones versus a bill? Mitchell is using them too. Well, if you want to think about who has a closer connection to the administration, I would assume Sean Hannity has a much more intimate connection to President Trump.
1: Fair enough. You might imagine that. However, they're very critical of the president. And we know that the president doesn't like people being critical of his policies.
0: I think that that's fair. Um, and I think what part of it is, is, you know, you had this issue come out. It's not really clear if the president is going to actually move forward with some sort of a built, like program to allow these DACA recipients to stay in the country, I think that would be wildly unpopular amongst his base. Right. Because if you think about it, let's just assume all 800,000 of these people have jobs. And the main issue we're facing in our economy right now, or at least one of the main issues, is that our labor force participation rate hasn't recovered to the levels it should be, and aging demographics doesn't account for all of that. So there are people who... who are just not participating in the labor force, which means they don't have a job, they're not looking for one. And so if you were to get rid of all 800,000 of these DACA recipients, presumably those are 800,000 jobs that could go to these people, as Trump likes to call the forgotten men and women of America. Right. So I, I agree that if he, if he does try to backtrack, this will be disastrous for the base and i think president trump understands that that if he backtracks on immigration he's going to be a lame duck president that sets him up just to get impeached by the democrats and True. his his entire presidency would go down in flames because if there's one thing that unites the right it's the idea of immigration and there has to be legal immigration and if we're going to and i think probably um, maybe a smaller portion of that agrees that if you're going to have immigration it should be like a points based we only want the smartest people coming in who are going to fill positions that are really going to add value to the U.S.
1: Right. Agreed. Um, and let's keep it in context, right? Um, uh, there are between 11 million and 30 million um, undocumented people in the United up to 40 States. 40 million. Uh, possibly up to 40 million. Right. And those, the exit of those, the eventual exit of those people, will also create tremendous upward pressure. Um, on employment. And uh, that will be lots of opportunity uh, that will be granted to Americans that they previously didn't have. So that's very good. And so if we're talking about a portion of 800000 symbolically, I don't like where it's going. But realistically, if we're talking at a portion, and the smaller the portion of that, the better, to use that as a bargaining chip, um, I do find some acceptability with that. Uh, However, I'm still... I still I'm still not happy with the with the yielding. I, I guess at this point we would have to um, look to the president himself and see what he's able to make of it um, I have to come over to your side at this point it's not worth abandoning the president over yet however we have to um, we have to make sure that he knows that the base really wants um, immigration to be taken care
0: of yeah so the way I would think about this is we would, never had this issue if paul ryan and mitch mcconnell and the rest of the republicans in congress could get their act together fund the border wall you wouldn't have to deal with daca paul ryan when obama initiated daca called the executive order unconstitutional and so you have all these rhinos up there saying okay when president obama's there when it doesn't count we're going to be against any type uh, of amnesty But now that President Trump's in charge, we're not actually going to go follow through with those promises. And because you have such weak-willed Republicans within Congress, I think President Trump is now being forced, in a sense, to give them the cold shoulder and say, hey, if you guys don't get along with this, I'm going to start dealing with the Democrats on some issues that we can agree on. This will rile up the base saying, what the hell is going on? Why, why can't we get the agenda through? And I think what's going to end up happening over this is that if people get the sense that the agenda is not getting through because purely because of the establishment Republicans in power, those who were up for re-election in 2018 are going to be in big trouble, especially when you consider that. Sebastian Gorka, I believe he's going to announce soon his plan to help out with pro-Trump candidates in Republican primaries for 2018. The way the agenda goes through is that President Trump needs to get at least a couple of major legislation through before the 2018 election and then really drive home either himself or through his surrogates to elect pro-Trump candidates into Congress so that then we have a lot more allies on our side to actually fight for the agenda because we have to remember in 2016 we voted for Trump and as a result we thought we were also going to get at least some of the Republicans were going to all rally behind the president and push forward the agenda but I think what some might have undervalued is how much the establishment prefers the swamp versus actually pushing for this economic nationalism agenda that the populists wanted. And so I think as part of that, Trump needs to get the base riled up. And I don't know if it's really justified for people to get in a whole tizzy over uh, this DACA discussion. Can't really call it a deal because there's no deal. It's just being brought up. If we have one another... Five, six months before the program expires so i think we have to wait and see what will happen but i think there should really be a rallying call to paul ryan and mitch mcconnell that if they don't get their act together you're going to have a lot of angry constituents who are going to go out and vote if you're up for re-election they're going to vote you out of office unless you're on board with the agenda
1: i hope that that's the case and The base is certainly riled up, but I hope that the base uh, strongly supports the president and supports the president's message. And um, so I guess we have two alternative hypotheses at the moment. One is that the establishment is moving the president in a certain direction. And the other is that this is um, just another part of the art of the deal. And there uh, there, there is quite a bit of plausibility, I think, to the concept that it could be the art of the deal. However, let's not forget that. The president values his own success and his family above just about everything else. And if some kind of deal is made with the establishment and he is surrounded by the establishment that can, and this is pure speculation, that can benefit um, his future success and his family, I think um, that he may be inclined to take that deal over making America great again.
0: Why would he want to make that deal if he ran his presidency on destroying the establishment? Because it seems like he's been, as the establishment would say, unpresidential, very unorthodox about how he how he went about one with his campaign and now with his presidency. They so, may be seductive. So, so, so what would be the catalyst to having Trump essentially completely backpedal? I mean, what well, we're looking I, I guess, at. I guess you could argue that. He's getting drugged in his in his Diet Coke, and that's changing his ability, or is being blackmailed. Um, uh,
1: possibly, uh, among other things. But consider the fact that um, Bannon and Gorka are out, and they, Bannon made uh, made the statement that um, the individuals most embodied in the policies that make MAGA have been uh, internally countered, systematically removed or undermined. Right. Um, and he also said, given recent events, it's clear to me that forces do not support the MAGA promise. Um, the forces that do not support that are ascendant in the White House. So if the president is surrounding himself with these establishment folks, they may be quite persuasive. We're talking about global capital concentrating on Washington, D.C. to essentially run the United States of America as the biggest uh, political and military and economic um Country in the world, there's a lot. There's a lot to be gained. So if the the establishment, as composed of individuals, were seduced by most likely this global capital, exactly what Donald Trump ran against the um, the donors, the special interests, etc. Um, he himself might be open to a deal. Pure speculation, but a deal that would set him and his family up forever. And we're talking about the entire establishment.
0: Yeah, I feel like it's kind of on a stretch. I mean. I see the argument from Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump really trying to play up President Trump to all of their elite friends, and I don't think he's really going to be a big hit unless they're also on board with the economic nationalist agenda. I mean, I can I can see how there is one, op- one possibility. I don't really th- see too much evidence to support that yet. I mean, I... I guess you can point to a couple of things that seem to be more establishment-prone thinking. And I think it is a problem that there are too many establishment folk within the White House. But I think that what the major issue is right now is that you have a lot of these establishment figures who don't feel fearful of President Trump because, one, they think he's just one man. you know, you don't really have other people like in the, in the Congress or other people of power who can really threaten them but i think once they start to see that you know you have this extremely active base that is going to elect people into congress and who can actually threaten your job security and then i think once this fear of being fired or for not following the agenda really sets in then i think you'll start to see people really get whipped into line but the issue is that it kind of i think it takes time to one devised a successful strategy to whip all of these people in line because you have an issue of a lot of these obama holdovers in there who are political appointees but the issue is that a lot of these political appointees that trump has made are still held up in the senate and they need to be confirmed which is a big problem and so i mean one you could argue that maybe president trump is not doing a good enough job of getting those nominations through and but i think the fault also lies among the republicans in the senate who are not doing as good of a job of pushing these candidates through and I think what you need to essentially add lubricant to this uh, process is that the base needs to get a lot more involved in calling up their senators and saying hey I want this political appointee you got to really do a much better job of pushing these through these people through Senate so they can take over these positions in the executive branch because the longer you had these Obama holdovers there they're the ones who are actually running the day-to-day operations. Like you might have people at the top who are Trump appointees, but there's only so much power the executive has. Uh, whereas the people who are subordinate to them, while they're supposed to follow the executive, says they can also have a lot of power over over the day-to-day or whatever their specialty is. So this creates a problem, and I can understand that. You know, maybe President Trump, in a hypothetical, I don't see as very likely, says you know, this is really difficult to be able to steer their ship. You know, maybe let's just abandon this and call it a day. We'll try to cut a deal to uh, essentially set up myself and my family to be at the good graces. But I think it's a little difficult to really buy into that theory because we have to remember, I think President Trump has a very acute understanding of he's essentially surrounded by snakes, thieves, sharks, whatever deal he makes. It's not like business is not going to say, okay, you know, know, I agree to this deal, I'm going to uphold it. I think these people are very two-faced. So they'll make the deal and then they'll come back around and stab him in the back.
1: I do agree with that. And I think that the news media is notorious for that. And Ann Coulter mentioned um, precisely that happening to George Bush, the senior, where he said, read my lips, no new taxes. Um, Eventually, the Democrats and the press Uh, coerced him into raising taxes Um, and the moment he did that
0: Uh, he even said during I think it was like the Republican National Convention oh these are all the ways that the Democrats are gonna try to get me to vote for new taxes and he said this is what my response is gonna be and uh, you can go ahead with what happened And
1: they proved pretty persuasive but my my point is that if the um, if DACA and illegal immigration is that important to the essentially the global capital that is running the establishment in D.C., if they're able to uh, fund both Democrats and Republicans and essentially get consensus amongst both parties, um, then that's pretty important to them. And so, wouldn't my thesis wouldn't be so much that Donald Trump got frustrated and quit because he's not a quitter. I don't see that happening. But he is a deal maker and he is an opportunist. And if they made him, and, and he would be a prize, because he is the only thing that's standing between them and open borders, right? Um, and so I think he would be a prize to be won, and he would be courted with any kind of um, material, earthly material, um, available to these people who obviously have so much power. And I'm speaking about the donor class, uh, essentially at the global capital. Speculation, of course.
0: Okay, yeah, I can... I can kind of understand that in a sense. And, you know, I mean, during the campaign, President Trump had mentioned that, you know, folks, this is uh, the last time if if we don't win this election, then the country's over. And because, I mean, I think one of it is just demographics. You know, a lot of these uh, immigrants and even the illegals who are here, if they were to get naturalized, I would argue most of them are going to vote for the left. That those are just votes for the Democrats, the Republicans would never be able to win anything ever again because maybe they stay concentrated in California and, and the West and some of them in New York, but I think they're going to start, they would start spreading across the U.S. and would just have the numbers to outvote Republicans in all sorts of elections. And so if the argument is that you know Trump is the last essentially the last stand against the open doors, uh, open borders group, then I guess I can see how it would be in their interests to want to try to coerce Trump into accepting the open borders doctrine. And I see the criticism that, you know, if President Trump makes any sort of concession with DACA, uh, for the border wall, you know, one, you had to make sure the wall is actually funded before any type of uh, amnesty or amnesty light or ability just to stay in the U.S. goes through. And if he's shown to be able to be negotiable on DACA, then he can also be shown and it sets a precedent that he can also be negotiable and flexible when it comes to illegal immigrants in general. You know, like what happens to DAPA? Um, I mean, the program is gone, but what's going to happen to the parents? What's going to happen to the people who came over here and had anchor babies? What what happens just to normal illegals who come here? So once all those issues start to become flexible, then I think the apparatus starts to fall apart because... You can't have any sort of amnesty for 11 to 40 million people. Reagan did that, he tried it, and Coulter mentions this, and that was a complete disaster. It turned California from a red state to a blue state, and it's essentially irreversible now. They have such a higher birth rate than uh, the native U.S. population that they're just going to win by numbers. And I can practically guarantee that most of their kids are not going to become Republican voters. They're going to stay the Democrat votes. So, if he wanted to absolutely destroy the Republican Party forever, unless there was some sort of massive revolt, that would be through some sort of amnesty program. So, I do agree if you have any sort of flexibility on DACA that destroys his leverage going forward.
1: And I think it, it also um, is quite legitimate for the base to be uh, really panicked when he's moving back on such a critical issue. Um, but I think this is also balanced against the fact um, that it really, I mean, personally, I think myself and, and on behalf, I think the base as well really want no negotiation on this issue whatsoever. They want a wall and they want everyone that should be on the other side of the wall on the other side of the wall. Um, but nevertheless, I think looking at the broader picture, um, we should be looking at what that deal looks like. And hopefully the president will be in, constant communication with the base in order to keep them engaged um, and keep their trust high and therefore their investment high um, but Some some wiggle room on a limited number of children say 400,000 not good But certainly not upwards of 40 million and especially if we exclude parents so I think that's something that people should keep in mind as they go forward and uh, time will tell uh, what that looks like, but as as you mentioned, Ann Coulter did say as well, and she's great for this, um, that uh, the the Democrats and the establishment will uh, take the money and run as soon as they can. So if they get a deal with um, a Democrat uh, with uh, undocumented people or illegals paying a fine, or if their par- their parents are initially meant to be kept out. I guess the point is that historically the Republicans have made some deals and the Democrats have reneged on the deals and we've come to the present situation. So we shouldn't be trusting the other side with any deal that they make um because it's very possible that that can be broken.
0: I agree. And we have to remember that, you know, according to the insider who worked on approving Docker recipients There weren't a lot of interviews taking place. Someone just sent an application and more likely than not, you know, the directive was to approve these people for the program. So when President Trump, you know, he's criticizing the refugee program, man, we don't even know who the hell these people are. I think the same applies to DACA. And so if you're going to have any sort of DACA deal and if you are in an unlikely, I view as an unlikely situation, you know, providing some ability for these people to stay, there has to be extreme vetting. If he's going to be strict on that about these people, these migrants coming in from uh, the Middle East, especially areas that have a huge terrorism problem, I think he has to apply the same standard to these DACA recipients because they're not all angels. I mean, you have to just face the facts like they're coming mostly from Mexico and Central America. And I don't if their parents are illegals more likely than not I don't they're probably not going to have uh, a requisite intelligence relative to a u.S native so from a hereditary perspective that puts them at a disadvantage but let's assume maybe you have some people who are who end up having a much higher intelligence level and they're able to get a good education I think it's just a small fraction of these people who are actually, Going to be net value adds to the U.S. And if the idea is you're going to have them pay back taxes, you have to include all the services they've taken advantage of. I mean, in a previous episode, we mentioned that just K through 12 education—that's $130,000 uh, or $130, $150-plus thousand dollars throughout their life. It's probably $10, $14,000 annually. So I think if you're going to have them stay here, that should be part of the bill. You know. You came in here, you know, you're, you were still illegal at the time. You don't deserve the taxpayers paying for these services for you. But then you also have to consider healthcare expenses, all these other expenses that were funded by the taxpayers. And since they were here illegally, they had no right to them. And so if they're going to have any sort of chance of staying here, I think you have to essentially have this massive bill they have to pay. And I think the voters should demand that. And if they don't, And what's going to happen is you're going to see only the people who have those top degrees are going to be able to pay that bill. Everyone else is probably going to want to deport themselves because they're not going to be able to afford that. And you know what? That's great. That's probably great for Mexico and Central America. They're going to have all these great educated people who are hardworking come and make their countries great again.
1: That's true. And um, let's keep in mind there could be um, a bill that was passed would be passed where they would have to pay essentially the bill for for their education and everything else Um, but tucker carlson had an interview i believe just yesterday um, where he said essentially that these things can be overcome with waivers because the democrats are interested in keeping these people here and not charging them um so there's that issue Um, and then two more points i'd like to raise um one is about the 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 moral character of these people and I've met some of the dreamers at the highest levels of American universities the the top tier of American universities and I can say the moral or social character of these people is resentful Um, it's uh, it's not very good these are people who are taking the spots of native-born Americans who otherwise would have those spots and these people are not thankful Um, they're quite uh, resentful And they tend to be on the left universally and on the radical left at that. And so I don't think these are the stabilizing forces that we need for our country. And I do believe that Americans um, could take these jobs uh, without too much of a problem.
0: Yeah, if I could just interject real quickly, you know, that kind of goes against what Bill Mitchell was saying. It's like, oh, you know, maybe we can be hopeful that some of these DACA recipients are going to go vote for Republicans. Right. I don't I think I think I think that's a. Far out possibility. The only way you're going to have any sort of Hispanic people voting Republican are the legal immigrants who actually don't appreciate these people who spit in the face of the law
1: or Cubans, for example, who who left Cuba to escape communism. These are people who built um, essentially a colony and then a a free market capitalist uh, country under the British and later the Americans. and those people left to escape communism, so they're a rare bunch who become Republicans. But these dreamers typically um, leave uh, simply just poor and broken states, and they tend to universally be on the left because those are the people that the left are counting on for their future votes.
0: And the, and the irony is is that you know you have people from Cuba, this is on one side, they leave a communist state, come over to the U.S., and actually embrace free market ideology. But right. then you have people coming from Central and South America here illegally bringing uh, all these bad ideas of socialism into the U.S. If it didn't work in your country, why do you think it's going to work in the U.S.? I mean, you have uh, uh, there's this woman named Gloria Alvarez who uh, she's affiliated with Prager University. She talks about, you know, if you're going to come from Central South America, don't bring your field of up here.
1: And you know what, I think it's more, it's less about ideology and it's more about who has stuff that I can get. You know, when the productive people left Cuba for the United States, they worked hard and they became productive people in the United States. I think that was a rare occurrence. Um, But these people now, I think they've driven out the productive people that were formerly in their country through socialist policies or some kind of uh, domestic corruption. And now they're coming here because there's a big fruit hanging on the northern tree. And there's still wealth to be had, and there are Democrats who are, or, or essentially, liber- essentially establishment people who are welcoming, welp- welcoming them in, um, and saying that yeah, the fruit is here, and you can have it, and they will suck it dry until there's nothing left um, for anybody. Which is yeah, essentially, yeah, yeah. I think, what happened in their home countries.
0: I, I think so. I mean, one one solution to that. I mean, Stefan Molyneux mentioned this is that there's always an economic incentive for these people, so. They come here, they come settle, have kids. Those kids become citizens. And now, you you know, they're now eligible for tons of welfare benefits. And those welfare benefits are going to be more lucrative than whatever they're going to be making in their home country. So you have one side of the argument, which is from a welfare perspective. And the other side is you can, I would say, view it from the globalist perspective that this is cheap labor. You know, it's kind of funny. They, they have a meme showing, you know, in the mid 1800s, the Democrats were saying, we free the slaves who's going to pick our cotton And today now you say if we deport the illegals who's going to pick our fruit on our farms so it's it's always been this argument we want this free now extremely cheap labor here and it's in a sense ironic because if you're one on one side of the party saying hey we want this cheap labor for quote-unquote jobs that americans won't do You have to think about the supply and demand of the labor market. Because you're increasing the supply, you're lowering wages. But if you're also going to be the party that's saying we should fight for 15, who are you going to fight for 15 for? Is that just legals? Are you going to include illegals within that? And if you have too many people in the country, especially in the lower end of the uh, skill and wage level, you're just going to further reduce wages for people in that subsection.
1: Absolutely. And I believe, um, again, on the Tucker, inter- Tucker Carlson interview that I was referring to earlier, um, his guest was making the argument that these people have been suppressed with artificially low wages. Um, so in one respect, oh, OK, that's uh, they're obviously better than the country that they came from. Um, but that will boost productivity because their their input versus their wage um, will, will be higher than someone who is domestic. However, if you legalize them, they will no longer be taken advantage of, which is something that we don't really want in our system anyway. But um, And then they'll be eligible for minimum wage jobs. And that means they'll simply displace American workers one for one. So they'll either be on unemployment collecting welfare because they're not able to get a job Um, at the minimum wage they are only capable of they are only attractive hires at uh, beneath minimum wage level Um, and if they are able to get that job they one for one displace American workers and that inevitably leads to unemployment so unless we have tremendous employment growth and I don't think these people are particularly job creators and I don't see the manufacturing age coming back in such a way that uh, we will have a demand for that kind of unskilled labor Um, it looks like, it looks like a horrible situation almost any way you slice it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the ones who are job creators are the ones who came here legally. They, they came here legally, you know, and I think a part of that is you have to be able to provide for yourself. And so they come here, they create their own businesses and that's how they're creating jobs. I agree with you. Those who are here legally are probably not the same way. They're not going to have, I don't think they would have that same level of entrepreneurialism as their legal counterparts. And I think it's a very fair point to bring up because, you know, we say that national unemployment is extremely low, 4.4%, but you also have to consider this includes all ethnicities. We still have a big issue of black unemployment, especially black youth unemployment. And guess where the youth stack up on the skill spectrum? They're definitely on the lower end. So they're only really going to be qualified for those lower wage jobs. And so if you have these 11 to 40 million people computing against them for those jobs, that's just going to further reduce their wages. So if you want to help solve this issue of black unemployment, it only makes sense that these illegals have to go. And as you see them go, you're going to see more job opportunities for these unemployed black youth. And not just blacks, you're going to see it for all ethnicities who are here as legal American citizens,
1: right? And let's keep in mind if somebody has is um, of tremendous value, they're often courted by companies um, in order, or a company will vouch for a person and, and provide them a legal pathway to citizenship if um, if they're desired. And they will be and, and those are the people that will be the job creators or the very high. Um, High level of skills that the country needs that it may not be able to get domestically, um, and the people that are coming illegally, including the dreamers, even the high achieving dreamers, uh, came here through illegal methods. And there's so there's a lot of displacement that's going on there. Whereas if you if you're in a if you're in a company, one could say there's displacement. One could also make another argument for um, additions where the skills didn't exist, and therefore the displacement isn't quite there. Uh, so you know, there's there's some flexibility there. Um, there are lots of different cases. This is quite a, a, a multimodal problem. Um, and then the other thing is, if they're coming in and they're going on unemployment, or they're competing with blacks for jobs, and we know that there's been lots of racial tension between the African American community and the Latino community. I mean, we're just we're just sowing more discord in in the disenfranchised parts of the country. And I I really have a hard time seeing how that's good for anybody.
0: No, I mean, we can't forget the 90s. You know, there was a huge problem of gang warfare between black gangs and Latino gangs where the Latinos were essentially starting to move into their neighborhoods, into their territory. And I think generally the black gangs started to lose that fight because the Latino gangs were backed by extremely powerful and well-funded drug cartels that had a lot heavier weaponry to use against them right
1: and think about the law enforcement requirements now we have more of them in jail we have more police on the streets typically in unproductive areas which shouldn't don't have the resources to hire more police officers ironically it's an inverse ratio or you know if people in wealthy neighborhoods don't need that much of a police force um so we're looking at a tremendous drain on the system
0: and if you have an issue with police brutality, maybe if you remove the illegals, you know, right. that's inherently going to reduce crime. That's going to reduce the need for these police to be in these neighborhoods. And perhaps you probably have a lower incidence rate between police and and these types of minorities that we see these uh, advocacy groups getting so upset about. And you also have to consider like the reason you have public safety in there there are also a lot of vulnerable people in that community who don't want crime where they're growing up. Like we don't consider that, you know, maybe there you have all these troublemakers and they're the ones who are really keeping everyone else back because there are a lot of people in those neighborhoods who just, in a sense, want to be left alone, want to be able to grow up in a safe area. But if they can't do that, that's very unfair to them. And that's why you need these police officers in these areas. But if you can at least mitigate part of that, by removing the illegals, I think that helps the situation.
1: And let's also consider that while there are cultural components to crime and sometimes there's the thrill of of committing various crimes, it's also it's also, um, an ex- uh, it's, it's also uh, always a, a competition for scarce resources. The, the crime is committed uh, generally to take something which one didn't have previously. And so it's the scarcity of that wealth that creates the crime or at least a part of the crime and if we uh, remove these illegals we'll see a natural increase in wealth pouring into those areas because more people will be employed and there, there will be um there'll be less consumers drawing on the system right uh, people that need to consume resources to survive uh, so you should see less tension that results as the, as a result of poverty so i think um i think it's just it's a win-win it's a win-win-win-win-win
0: yes so I'll come from this uh, from a globalist perspective. So if you want to think about uh, GDP, there are four components into how it's calculated. One, you have uh, consumer spending. Next, you have business investment. Then you have government spending. And then you have uh, net exports. So one way to grow an economy is you just have massive population growth. While this doesn't necessarily help GDP per capita, it will increase the nominal number of GDP. And so one incentive to have all these people come in is that you can start boosting your GDP numbers. Second is if you have these people consuming government resources, that increases the G, which is government spending in the GDP formula. And so that's another way to have essentially growing your GDP. And so there are, in a sense, these perverse economic incentives for these globalists to bring in all these illegals
1: right and of course the gdp isn't related to health or necessarily even gdp per capita or or well-being um and those metrics by this kind of uh growth economic growth are well the metrics of well-being are diminished of course it's basically like um if if human weight was an indicator of human wealth and status and so if you became 300 pounds from a former 150 that would be a good thing. Of course, it's not. You are heavier, but you are not healthier. So, um, but I, I guess, um, I'm not sure if you know the question or the answer to this question, but are uh, is the GDP figure, would that be for getting better borrowing rates? Or what What? What kind of benefits would globalists gain from increasing GDP?
0: So, so one end is you, you have them providing, you're going to have this big business environment that's going to be providing services to one, those are just receiving welfare benefits. But if you're increasing GDP, the idea is that people are spending more money in the economy and they're gonna be buying more of your products. And a faster GDP growth will also translate into better financial markets. So you're gonna see higher stock markets, bonds will continue to do well. And so if you consider the wealthy, most of their wealth is gonna be stored up in financial assets. And so if you have strong GDP growth, this is good for their personal wealth.
1: Okay, so if you're the owner of a supermarket chain or, or you have a lot of money in the stock market, or both, um, GDP growth is a pretty key figure.
0: It, yeah, it definitely helps. And if you're the government, uh, faster GDP growth also indicates that uh, you're gonna have a healthier economy, you're gonna have a much easier time of paying back your debt, and so governments can then borrow at much cheaper rates. I think that part of the argument is a little muddied because you have uh, essentially the central bank that can institute quantitative easing and can that uh, they control the interest rates, so at least short-term interest rates. So I don't think that argument is as strong, but I think it really boils down to those who are the owners of capital benefit from stronger GDP growth. Right. Well,
1: I think um, I think we've gone over quite a few points. Um, I think we can both agree that the any form of illegal immigration is probably not a good thing for Americans, and it's it's reasonable that the base is riled up. Um, but it's a little bit more ambiguous what's going on there in the White House. We know Trump is a tremendously unpredictable and capable character, and he's um, he's done a lot for, for the base so far. Uh, but we're in a very uh, precarious situation uh, where I think you're right. We don't have enough data points to make a good judgment yet.
0: Yeah, and I would just uh, quote... Uh, Sebastian Gorka, if you really have a lot of concerns about uh, this potential DACA deal, please direct your questions to Secretary of State Mitt Romney. (laughs) Good old Mitt. Yeah, Gorka is still a pit bull for the president, and I I consider Gorka a very smart person, so if if you have these strong allies still standing by the president, and as long as we don't see a final deal that betrays the base, I'm going to maintain faith in the president. I understand it takes time to get these deals through. Remember, it, it took over a, a year to about a year and a half for Obama to get the Affordable Health Care Healthcare Act through. So or I, I guess it would be ACA, so the Affordable Care Act.
1: And Sebastian Gorka does strongly support uh, Donald Trump's decision. And he makes the, uh, the argument that's quite persuasive that these positions that the president has held uh that the president holds he has held for um decades and he's talked about illegal immigration as a problem for decades um and especially his policies on trade um, regarding china and uh, u.s defense um so these these aren't new um and there's a there's a likelihood that these are um, foundational elements of the president's character so i find that a persuasive argument um that can hold the tiller uh steady for the future when the president is sailing the ship.
0: I would agree. Remember, even President Trump said this that he was the messenger of the movement. Remember, the movement is still there. We have the numbers. And as long as Trump voters show up in twenty eighteen and ensure that they vote for pro-Trump candidates to enter Congress, that's what's really gonna what it's really gonna take to push the agenda forward because you can't have rhinos in the establishment and party leadership running Congress. That is one institution that we, the voters, need to take care of because we have President Trump and we're taking over the courts, but we have yet to win in the rest of the executive branch departments and in Congress. So until we have those remaining two institutions, under our control, it's going to be difficult to move the agenda. So I think what this should really be is a rallying call to the base that you need to make sure, get out there, be active in your community, make sure that those in your community understand the importance of voting for pro-Trump candidates, those who are in favor of economic nationalism, because that is the key to really building our country to make America great again. And if we don't do that, just as Bannon was saying, you know, it's, that type of presidency is over. It's going to be a lot harder to win this fight. It's just realistic. You're going to and have to make you're right. deals. You're going to have to make deals with Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, and those are not necessarily people who are on board with the message. It makes it a lot easier to push things through when you have a lot of allies in Congress.
1: I agree completely, and I think I think that is the message that regardless of of the the outcome of this situation that base support is essential for moving the uh the the uh, our positions forward and i think um, we have great leadership in sebastian gorka and steve bannon and i'm more and more confident the more we discuss this that donald trump is is you know he is the man on the mountaintop and i think we can we can support him but either way i think we really need to get out there and to connect this to our previous podcast about um authenticity and honesty becoming more palatable in public Um, that political correctness is no longer constraining us. I think um, more people can feel comfortable getting out there and expressing their beliefs and uh, supporting people that they find are good candidates. Um, And and I think that's going to happen, that's going to increase more and more that people feel comfortable getting out there and campaigning for the candidates that they like. And I think that's key and campaigns is so much fun. It's such a great opportunity to meet with people that think like you and to get that enthusiasm, that team enthusiasm to move the ball forward. It's a great show and I think if we can become politically active like that, nothing can stop us.
0: I agree. So I trust that we've uh, convinced at least some people who are considering jumping off the Trump train to at least hold their faith for a little while longer until we can get a deal, a final deal uh, released. And so I think with that, I think we should uh, wrap up this episode. You know, I think the future looks bright for us. And as long as the base stays active, we will truly be able to make America great again. So thank you all for listening to this episode of Unfiltered, an intellectual podcast.
1: Over and out.